Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and you are listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast. Crafted by me, a self-confessed history geek who enjoys those stories from the past that might have been forgotten. The Backtracker History Show is first aired on Bradystoke FM in Bristol, England, before being plonked onto the podcast stage for all to enjoy. Now, if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to share or leave feedback. It all helps. Keep in touch via either Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK. This podcast special is all about a jazz and blues vocalist whose powerful, soulful voice won her countless fans and earned her the title Empress of the Blues. When Bessie Smith sang, everybody stopped to listen. She had a powerful, earthy voice which embodied all the misery and sadness of the world. She was probably one of the best female blues singers who ever lived But she lived too high, drank too much, and died tragically on the 26th of September, 1937, in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Born Elizabeth Smith on April 15th, 1894, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Bessie was one of seven children. Her father, William Smith, a Baptist minister, died soon after her birth. This left her mother, Laura, alone to raise her and her six siblings. Around 1906, her mother and two of her brothers died, and Smith and her remaining siblings were raised by their older sister. They nearly starved. To help make ends meet, the sister took in laundry, and young Bessie took to the streets to sing for pennies, accompanied by one of her younger brothers on a guitar, and at churches. And it was one of these churches that encouraged the young Bessie, with the strong voice, to take her talents further. Years later, when Bessie Smith became successful, she moved her older sister and other family members to live near her in Philadelphia and supported them financially, even when they squandered her money away. In 1912, Bessie began performing as a dancer in the Moses Stokes Minstrel Show and soon thereafter in the Rabbit Foot Minstrels, a touring variety show that played to rural populations of the South and Midwest, of which blues vocalist Ma Rainey was a member. Now, Ma Rainey became Bessie's mentor and took her under her wing. Over the next decade, Smith continued to perform at various theatres and on the vaudeville circuit. Bessie soon attached herself to other touring companies as a solo act, which was very daring in those days for a single woman. Even Ma Rainey had a husband who travelled with her. In 1923, Bessie made her first recording for Columbia Records, and then she married a Philadelphia policeman called Jack G. During her marriage, she informally adopted a six-year-old boy and named him Jack Jr., but as her and G's relationship became strained, G would use their son as a bargaining chip, eventually kidnapping him and accusing Smith of being a neglectful, incompetent mother. 
A court ruling first gave custody to Smith's sister, Viola, then later to Jack Jr.'s biological father, who neglected the boy and sometimes forgot to feed him. Jack Jr. later said, My father once put me in the Children's Aid Society, 106th Street in New York, and said my mother wasn't looking after me properly. She got me out on the provision that she would send me to stay with her sister, Viola, in Philadelphia, while she was on tour. I hated it there. Another time, father put me in the Brace Memorial Home, boys in Valhalla, New York, and from there to a place in eastern Maryland. It, it was two years before I saw my mother again. Now, during Bessie's career, she was among the highest paid black performers of her time. When they reported 10 months of signing Smith, the Columbia label sold 2 million records. The record Downhearted Blues sold over 800,000 and became Columbia's first pop hit. Over the next four years, Bessie's sales reached 6 million. Now, a young Louis Armstrong recorded with her in 1925 and needed change for his first ever $100 bill. I say, look here, Bessie, you got change of a hundred, Armstrong recounted on Voice of America in 1956. And she say, sure, man. She raised up her dress, standing there was like, you know, how a carpenter keeps her nails. And managed so much money in the apron under her skirt. <laughs> that killed me. Bessie sold millions, but Columbia paid her no more than $200 per song released and no artist royalties. She earned her living performing live. Smith was well known to have lesbian affairs throughout her marriage to Jack G, the most intense of which was with Lillian Simpson. When Smith got angry with her and ignored her for days, the poor girl, who was part of her chorus, would attempt to kill herself. At one point, Bessie told Simpson, I got 12 women on this show and I can have one every night if I want it. After Simpson, there were many other women some of which her husband would even catch her with. Up to 1930, she wrote 35 songs, recorded 160, and sold 10 million records, and managed to spend every bit of the $1 million she earned. Smith once reportedly asked a little girl at a Philadelphia talent show, Is you in school? Yes, ma'am, the little girl said. Well, you better stay there, because you can't carry a note. Remember that conversation later, guys. Now, Smith lived at a time when social change meant the passage of racial segregation laws nationwide. Lynching of black men and women could number in the hundreds per year. Here's a little bit of information about Bessie's show. As far back as the 1920s, Bessie's performances featured plus-size women bent over with their bottoms facing the audience, shaking those money makers like there was no tomorrow. Yes, I am saying that she was twerking. 1920s. Think about that. Now, fame is a fickle little minx. And Bessie's fame suddenly came to an end. She began drinking more than ever. And this, in itself, alienated most of her friends. Bessie and her husband, who also happened to be her agent, separated in 1930. The drinking was a problem. She broke so many engagements because of it, 
at theatres, and they soon refused to book her, and she slipped back down to cheap tours of clubs for only $150 a week. Bear in mind, at the height of her career, she commanded $1,500 a week. She was virtually penniless and working in a gin mill in North Philadelphia as a hostess, singing pornographic songs for tips. She had given up hope for a comeback and was really, really drinking more than ever. Columbia Records called Bessie back to the studio in New York during the height of the Depression to record what would be her last ever recordings on a Friday in November 1933. Ironically, on the following Monday, a then unknown Billie Holiday entered the same New York studio to make her first recordings. Holiday counted Smith as an important musical inspiration. On September 26, 1937, Smith was critically injured in a car crash on US Route 61 between Memphis, Tennessee and Clarksdale, Mississippi. Her boyfriend, Richard Morgan, was driving and misjudged the speed of a slow-moving truck ahead of him. Skid marks at the scene suggested that Morgan tried to avoid the truck by driving around its left side, but he hit the rear of the truck side-on at high speed. The tailgate of the truck sheared off the wooden roof of Bessie's old Packard vehicle. Bessie, who was in the passenger seat, probably had her right arm or elbow out the window because it was hot. She took the full brunt of the impact. Morgan escaped without injuries. The first person on the scene was a Memphis surgeon, Dr. Hugh Smith, no relation. In the early 1970s, Hugh Smith gave a detailed account of his experience to Bessie's biographer, Chris Albertson. This is the most reliable eyewitness testimony about the events surrounding her death. Arriving at the scene, Hugh Smith examined Bessie, who was lying in the middle of the road, with obviously severe injuries. He estimated she had lost about half a pint of blood, and immediately noted a major traumatic injury. Her right arm was almost completely severed below the elbow. He stated that this injury alone did not cause her death, though the light was poor he observed only minor head injuries. Hugh Smith later said that Bessie Smith had suffered severe crushing injuries to her entire right side. She was having trouble breathing and she probably had abdominal injuries. He attributed her death to extensive injuries consistent with a sideswipe collision. Dr Smith had been travelling with his friend Henry Broughton. The plan had originally been to spend the weekend fishing. Henry and Dr Smith moved Bessie Smith to the safety of the shoulder of the road, where Dr Smith dressed her arm injury with a clean handkerchief and asked Broughton to go to a house about 500 feet off the road to call for an ambulance. By the time Broughton returned about 25 minutes later, Bessie Smith was in shock. Time passed with no sign of the ambulance, so Hugh Smith suggested that they take her to Clarksdale in his car. He and Broughton had almost finished clearing the back seat when they heard the sound of a car approaching at high speed. Dr Hugh Smith could see what was going to happen 
and he flashed his lights in warning, but the oncoming car failed to stop and crashed into his car at full speed. It sent his car careening into Bessie Smith's overturned Packard, completely wrecking it. The oncoming car ricocheted off Hugh Smith's car into the ditch on the right, barely missing Broughton and Bessie Smith. The young couple in the new car did not have life-threatening injuries, but they were hysterical. Two ambulances then arrived from Clarksdale, one from the Black Hospital, summoned by Broughton, the other from the White Hospital, acting on a report from the truck driver who had not seen the accident victims. Bessie Smith was taken to the G.T. Thomas Afro-American Hospital in Clarksdale, where her right arm was amputated. She died that morning without regaining consciousness. After her death, an often repeated but now totally discredited story emerged that she died because a whites-only hospital in Clarksdale refused to admit her. Firstly, this wouldn't have happened, as no ambulance driver in those days would have wasted their time even trying to get a coloured person into a white hospital. Now, Bessie's funeral was held in Philadelphia a little over a week later, on October the 4th, 1937. An estimated 10,000 mourners filed past her coffin on Sunday, October the 3rd. Contemporary newspapers at the time reported that her funeral was attended by about 7,000 people. Far fewer mourners attended the burial at Mount Lawn Cemetery in nearby Sharon Hill. The Vancouver Sun says that Bessie was laid out in an expensive open silver metal casket trimmed with gold and lined in two-toned velvet. She was wearing a lace gown and pink slippers. There was money for a headstone apparently, but her estranged husband spent it on something or someone. This meant that Bessie's grave in Pennsylvania had no headstone for more than 30 years. Although Jazz artists as far back as 1948 had held many special concerts to help raise funds for a headstone. Jack G. Jr. would later say, My father would show up at the concerts, demand all the money, and say he'd have his lawyers stop the show if he didn't get it. He made enough money to buy six headstones. That was when Janis Joplin helped buy Bessie's headstone in 1971 two weeks before her own untimely death. But the other person who helped buy the stone was Juanita Green, the little girl who Bessie once told to give up singing and stay in school. Green had become a nurse and a businesswoman in Pennsylvania, which suggests that the breadth of Bessie's influence should never have been confined solely to music. On the very day the new headstone was dedicated, the Bessie Smith Foundation was established by persuading guests to contribute as much as $100 each. Juanita Green was entrusted with the foundation, which she ran from her home in Philadelphia. 
it had to be closed a few years later due to lack of funds, but it did manage to get a few students through college. It's interesting to note that the G.T. Thomas Afro-American Hospital at 615 Sunflower Avenue in Clarksdale, where Bessie died, was later converted into the Riverside Hotel after it closed in about 1940. The room that used to be the emergency ward in the 1930s became a bedroom for the son of the new owner, Mrs. Z. L. Hill, who died in 1997, as well as a point of interest with fans like John F. Kennedy, who came to visit. A young Ike Turner used to stay there and the owner would sew his stage costumes and let his band rehearse in the basement. The hotel remains open, operated by Frank Rat Ratcliffe, the son of the first owner, until his death in 2013. The hotel is still operated by Ratcliffe's daughter, Zelina, and the room, said to be the one in which Bessie died, is decorated in her memory, but is generally not rented out. A month after the accident, the man responsible for getting Bessie back into the studio, John Hammond Sr., wrote in Downbeat magazine that the great singer was refused treatment because of her colour and bled to death while waiting for attention. It is now thought that he said that because it would help sales of the newly released recorded material. This story, though, was repeated in black newspapers nationwide. Luckily, protests from Memphis hospital authorities and the city's mayor motivated Downbeat magazine to reinvestigate and do a second story, setting the location right for a start and debunking the racist angle. Hammond admitted, 34 years later, that he had relied on hearsay for the first article. Although this theme was further repeated in Edward Albee's 1959 play, The Death of Bessie Smith, as well as Alan Lomax's book, The Land Where the Blues Began, which incidentally raised the number of hospitals that refused Bessie to three. It's worth noting that Dr Hugh Smith, the first medic on the site of the accident, is white and treated her just like he would treat anyone else in such a state. He said in an interview that a race didn't even come into it. He was going to help. Bessie Smith the first bisexual, alcoholic, dark-skinned singing sensation whose husband cheated on her with a light-skinned girl called Gertrude Saunders. And when Bessie found out about it, she tried to pull Gertrude's hair out by the follicles. Bessie was also beaten by segregationists at one point stabbed in her stomach. And she was cheated out of songwriting royalties. In 1975, a lawsuit was started against Columbia Records and Empress Music Inc. by her adopted son, Jack Jr., charging them with infringement of Bessie's copyright and failure to pay royalties on her recordings. It turns out that her then-manager, Frank Walker, was also the vice president of Columbia, and by negotiating both sides of Bessie's contract, he could eliminate the royalties clause from Bessie's and reinvest the money in the company. Unfortunately, Jack Jr. lost, as it turns out. He wasn't formally adopted, and there was no paperwork to prove his relationship to Bessie, even though her whole family was on his side and stated that he was her son. In 
1976, Jack G. Jr. was a $150 a week security guard in South Philadelphia. With very little to show for his 56 years, except a minor arrest record and a glass eye from a fight he got into eight years before. He didn't have many memories of Bessie, mainly due to her touring schedule and his moving in and out of institutions. He was lucky if he managed to get a total of five good years with her, even though he was 17 when she died. Let's remember Bessie Smith as the brassy, sassy, big and bold singer who knew exactly who she was and what she liked and wasn't afraid to show it. Bessie Smith, the first black female superstar. you enjoyed this podcast exclusive of the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. Now, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. I'm on Twitter and Facebook. You can find me by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. If you leave a comment or a rating wherever you get your podcasts, that would be brilliant. I'd also be interested in hearing from you if you've got any ideas for future shows. The music you're listening to at the moment is called Finer Ties by a band called The Model Folk. Now you can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So, until next time, take care guys and look after each other. <laughs>